Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have two guests today. I have uh, Tony Pollan. She's an associate professor, University of Maryland School of Medicine. Uh, she's a human geneticist and a board-certified genetic counselor. Uh, she focuses on diabetes, and there are more kinds than I knew of. I thought there was just type 1 and type 2, but uh, her focus that she wants to talk about today is what's called monogenic diabetes that she'll describe. And she's brought on Emily Moore uh, because Emily and her daughters appear to have this very specific kind of diabetes. So that's who's on the call, and welcome both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, Mr. Jacobs, good but, to be here. Yeah, so Tony, tell me... Um, you were starting to tell me offline, but tell me a little bit about this, this mm-hmm. other type of diabetes. What is it? You know, what's it about? Sure. Well, as you said, um, Richard, you you know, you know that you knew that there was type one and type two diabetes. So you know there are, most people know there are a couple of, of kind of different broad categories of diabetes. Um, in in the sixties and seventies, those types of diabetes were actually known as juvenile diabetes and uh, maturity onset diabetes. So there were the people with juvenile diabetes who were, you know, basically children were thought to have juvenile diabetes. This was kind of a, a an acutely occurring condition where the, the immune system destroyed the beta cells and these children had to be on insulin um, to, to stay alive. And then there was maturity onset diabetes, which happened in, in people, more in people as they got older. Um, it was influenced by um, by by weight and 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 activity level and those people with maturity onset diabetes often could control the diabetes through through lifestyle or oral medications but there were some very astute physician scientists in probably earlier but really starting to really talk about it and define it in the 60s and 70s who said gee look there's this group of there's there are some children who have diabetes but the type of diabetes they look like they have does not look like classical juvenile diabetes because it it seems to be milder, they still can produce insulin, and some of them even respond to the pills that, that, that are available for people with type 2 diabetes from a class of drugs called sulfonylureas, which is actually one of now the many classes of drugs for type 2 diabetes. Um, some actually didn't require treatment and just sort of stayed in the mild range. And so they, they noticed this, um, that this sort of peculiar type of diabetes that, that they thought was, you know, pretty rare, but that kind of shared features of both uh, juvenile, which we now call type one, and know that it's not just in juveniles also, and type two, and uh, maturity onset, which we now call type two, which we actually also know is not just in, in, in adults, and that's why the names have changed. But the other very interesting feature about this type of diabetes was that unlike type, unlike the other types of diabetes, the more common types of diabetes that, that sort of they cluster in families, which we now know is due to kind of a complex mix, mixture of genetic and environmental factors. These types of diabetes were inherited in what geneticists know of as an autosomal dominant manner, which means uh, that if a person had one of these uh, types of diabetes, then each of their children was showing approximately 50% chance of having the type of diabetes. And it was very consistent with there being one single gene 
where a change in one single gene in a given family was responsible for that. And that's similar to other diseases that we know about, like, you know, Huntington disease and sickle cell anemia, but, you know, not really typical of diabetes, but it was in, in some of these families. And some of the early researchers collected these really large families that, that, that showed this. And so that's sort of where it was before. And now, and starting in the 90s, actually the gene, there's three genes that are responsible for most of these cases, and they were actually discovered in the 1990s. Um, today, we have tens of genes that, that, are, that, that seem to be involved, you know, a different gene in, in different individuals and families. And they actually seem to be a little bit more common than we thought they were, that they may account for, you know, you know 1% of all diabetes and, you know, and a higher percentage in, in younger people. So what does this kind of diabetes have in terms of uh, symptomology and, you know, what's unique about it? Yeah. So, I mean, the tricky part is that in some ways it's not unique. In some ways they, they look like they have diabetes, but the, the, uh, the things that distinguish it in the 60s and 70s, often what was a tip off is you had a child who looked like they had a, an adult onset or what's what we now call type two diabetes, but the child was, was lean. So it's like, if you have this kind of lean person, like kind of a classic case is if you have like kind of a lean person who's young, but doesn't show any signs, doesn't have, you know, it still has the ability to respond to oral medications and doesn't have that kind of severe diabetes that requires uh, um, insulin. That being said, it's, it can be very tricky because uh, what happens is there are all different ways that people are diagnosed with diabetes. So one answer is they can look a lot like anybody else with diabetes. The other answer is sometimes they'll look atypical like that, you know, where you have someone who's young and thin, and yet they have a type of diabetes that's more like the diabetes seen in adults. But what we know is that there are some ways that if we're thinking about it, we can pick up even more cases. So, so for example, you don't have to be overweight to have monogenic diabetes, but you know, there's a high, fairly high prevalence of being overweight or obese in our population today. And so it might, we might assume that they have, that an overweight person has type two diabetes, when in fact, that person there, they actually may still have this diabetes due to a single gene. And so what we have and what we're the, the real work that's going on now, and has there has been work on this going on at the University of Exeter in England, um, they where they sort of developed a surveillance system involving um, nurses who try to you know try to work to find these cases, help different clinics find these cases. But there are ways that you can tell them apart. So, for example, if a child is is uh, comes in, say a five year old you know breaks her arm, um, and she goes to the the ER and they run some standard tests and maybe they run glucose on which they don't normally do in a five year old, but they might be running just a bunch of things to to get the overall health. They may find that the glucose is elevated and the child has no symptoms. So the, the, the assumption might be, oh, we're catching this child at a very early stage of type 1 diabetes. Um, we better put them on insulin before they, they suffer from you know, some of the more serious symptoms of diabetes. But it turns out that in that case, what's often called incidental hyperglycemia, where, you, where the glucose, you just happen to measure it and it happens to be high, that there's a good chance that that's another condition. It's one of the forms of um, MODI, which is also called glucokinase diabetes, where they have a enzyme deficiency that causes their glucose to be mildly elevated for their whole lives. And in that case, it's usually benign, right? And so, you know, we often diagnose diseases, not necessarily by symptoms, but by things we measure. But if we measure glucose, especially in a young person, and their fasting glucose is elevated, and there's no symptoms, then 
we, we don't usually consider all these, but we need to because that person might actually have something that doesn't require treatment and in fact won't respond to treatment. So how will they know that they're sick? I mean, I don't understand. They'll they'll have elevated glucose and I mean, why would they? Right, they won't. And a lot of these, if they, if they felt fine, what what do they feel? If, yes, it's different. Right. So there's different ways. Like, I, and I'm just trying to separate them. One is, you know, somebody has symptoms of diabetes. They may have one of these forms of diabetes. If somebody presents with symptoms that look like diabetes, things like thirst and excessive urination, then they might go to the doctor and have a diabetes workup. If they're a child, they might be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and treated with insulin. If they're an adult, they might try, assume that they have type 2 diabetes. But if, um, if they're thinking about monogenic diabetes, then they will look closely and, and say, if, if it's a child who they think might have type 1 diabetes, might have autoimmune diabetes, one of the things they can do is first measure these markers that are these uh, antibodies that circulate in most people with type 1 diabetes. And if the person doesn't have those antibodies in their blood through a blood test, then that's a clue that actually what might be causing that is one of these forms of monogenic diabetes. And the forms of monogenic diabetes, the most common forms encode uh, proteins that are either involved in the the development and the function of the insulin-producing beta cells or in the process that occurs in the beta cells that's uh, catalyzed by an enzyme called glucokinase, where they have an insufficiency of it. So you mentioned that, what, insulin may not work in these people, maybe... uh... Would it cause adverse events? Like, what are some of the peculiarities of them physically? What do they feel? So it depends on the type. Yeah, so it depends on the type. So there's one type of diabetes called glucokinase diabetes. Um, And in those cases, they have an insufficiency of an enzyme of an enzyme called glucokinase. And so they actually, when their glucose is just kind of circulating fasting, they they don't produce that much insulin. And so their glucose just kind of um, is just sort of high when they eat glucose you know, a meal when they eat sugar, then they, then their, uh, their, their glucokinase is able to work and they're able to secrete insulin to break down the food, but they're walking around. They just basically have a set point, every have a higher set point, everything shifted up. So it turns out that first of all, their, their glucoses tend to be in such a mild range that it's been shown that they don't usually end up with complications. And the other thing that's been shown is if you try to give somebody like that glucose, it'll seem like it's really hard to control their diabetes because their bodies will just adjust and still have the same high glucose. So it won't work and there could be potential and potentially there could be, you know, problems with trying to, you know, trying to, to give them, to give them glucose. The other, the other type of diabetes, and I'm going to have another kind of the second major type of monogenic diabetes. I'm going to have another expert here talk about it a little bit. Um, It's called transcription factor diabetes. Um, it's caused by a mutation in either the HNF1 alpha gene or the HNF4 alpha gene. Um, these genes encode what are called transcription factors that help the pancreatic beta cells to develop to, and to function and to secrete insulin. Now, it, they have difficulty secreting insulin. So if you give insulin, it will work. It will lower the, the, the blood glucose. But it turns out that if you give them an oral medication, it's, it, you're treating the actual underlying problem. Um, where there oral some oral medications, but not or, all oral medications, help the help the beta cells to secrete their own insulin. So you're being less in, less invasive, um, and often with better control. And so you know you can imagine that you know you get diagnosed with uh, type one diabetes, and you either have insulin injections. Now they have an insulin pump, which they didn't used to have. But you know, giving going from giving yourself shots every day to finding out, oh, you actually 
can harness the, your own, your body's own insulin uh, producing power if you take, um, actually, it turns out a low dose of an oral medication. And so, you know, there, whatever the effects there are of insulin, it, it's certainly less intrusive, um, it's less expensive, and um, often confers better control. And so I'm going to just, you know, turn this over now to Emily to, to talk about her experience. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Go ahead, Emily. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I I can just explain a little bit about like how my diagnosis occurred, because I think I fit into that pattern that Tony was describing that. So when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed at 16 with what my doctor, and this was 1986. So um, it was a while ago. I was diagnosed with what my doctor said was an atypical form of diabetes. That's, he called it Modi. I didn't have any signs or symptoms of diabetes. I just had got, I was having allergies. And so I went and as part of this, just the workup that happened when I went to the doctor, they tested my blood sugar and they were like, oh my God, it's at 290 or something like that. And I was like, okay, <laughs> because it didn't have any meaning for me because I wasn't embedded in that world, but. It's normally super high, but yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I worked with the endocrinologist who knew he was just a little ahead of his time. And he said this in the future, like 20 years from now, there's going to be a lot of different kinds of diabetes that are diagnosed. He was really into research. Um, and he said, but for now, we're just going to say, you know, you have this thing, it's called Modi. It's not really well understood. I was advised, he advised me to change my diet at that time. It was like, eliminate the sugar keep exercising and also prescribing an oral medication. And that's what I did to manage diabetes, you know, from high school through my twenties. And it generally worked pretty well. And it wasn't until, you know, I always kind of wondered, I wonder what this Modi thing is, but there wasn't any information about it ever. And then it wasn't until I got married and had kids. And I started wondering because by that time I had learned that it was genetic. There was a genetic component. And I started wondering, worrying that my, I could have passed it along to my kids. So I enrolled in uh, two studies. One was at the University of Chicago and the other was Tony's study. And through those, I learned that I had this Modi 3, which is this H1F1A Modi um, that Tony was describing. Okay. So, but, uh, you know, what did you experience? So they said, oh, you have a high blood sugar level. Did you feel anything? Were you totally fine? I mean, what, so what have you I- had to do to bring your levels down? So I just learned, so you have to know that like this was back in the eighties. And so it wasn't so common for people to have, you know, what I did a urine test to check my blood sugar. So I would just have these little test strips and, and I really, I was a teenager. I wasn't super uh, good about doing it because I didn't really, it wasn't really clear to me because I had no, I had no physical sensation of like, oh, my blood sugar is high or it's low. I didn't have any of that. Um, until I started taking oral medication, then sometimes I get these surprise lows and I'd be like, oh, I think I'm having a low. I think I need to eat something. But it was so, you know, this was way before home glucose testing kits and before CGM, certainly. And so there just wasn't a whole lot of data to respond to. So it wasn't something that I really felt. I mean, I but I'm also certain that my blood sugar was regularly over 200. I just think it was rather than being these acute situations that people experience when they're diagnosed with type one, I was just had this smoldering high blood sugar all the time, I imagine. Wouldn't you think, Tony? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I think, and this brings up, you know, a good point, which is that 
in this particular, this MODI-3, um, also called HNF1-alpha diabetes, it is like, like other forms of diabetes. And unlike the glucokinase form I mentioned earlier, it is progressive. And so it's actually fortunate to have it picked up when you're a teenager and picked it up as, as Emily described, you know, again, you know, incidentally, she was having a workup for something else and, you know, they found her glucose was high because having levels that high can start to, you know, cause problems and complications. So being aware then allows you to treat it um, before it causes you to have um, the, you know, these what they call microvascular and mi macrovascular complications. And so it's useful to know, often people don't know until they become symptomatic, but there are a lot of people with diabetes that don't know they have it because they're not symptomatic. In fact, it's thought of that of the all the now th up to 34 million people in the United States who have diabetes, about half of them may not know it. I mean, what have you been told, Emily, about the consequences of like persistently high blood sugar? You know, oh. what have doctors told you? Like, is it uh, do you think it's going to cause you all kinds of problems or? Well, I mean, it would. I mean, now I these days I, you know, I'm more knowledgeable because I know that it's Modi and I have. Uh, or I know that it's Modi 3. And so I wear a CGM and I, at different points in my lifetime with diabetes, um, I've taken insulin or oral medication and been on an insulin pump. And so I have the experience of having had, like the insulin pump was really beneficial during pregnancy. But but I guess my point is I've used those tools to manage the diabetes. So yeah, the complicated, I mean, I've certainly been warned by every endocrinologist I've ever seen that, you know, you need to keep your blood sugar in a tight range. Otherwise you, you know, you're going to experience the same, same kind of complications that people who have type one diabetes are, are prone to having like eye problems with the eyes and heart disease and, you know, the whole litany of things that comes along with, with any kind of diabetes type one or type two. You wore a CGM for a while or do you now? I currently wear a CGM and I, I have oh. to say it's like the, and I, I believe I, heard in one of your podcasts that you do as well. Am I right? Yeah. My wife and I wear one. And that's what I was going to ask you because my profile looks totally different from hers. Like, you know, we eat a meal with, let's say a bunch of carbs, which we try not to do anymore. Um, hers will spike <laughs> up real high and then crash way down. And, you know, she won't feel well when it crashes down and then it'll come back if, you know, sometimes she has to have one or two things to eat and then she'll feel better. Mine will, you know, let's say go high and then go down slowly, slowly over time. What, I was going to ask, what's yours? Like, what do your CGM profiles look like? Are they very unusual or? Mine? They uh, well, you? Yeah. I mean, it, first of all, it's fascinating just to hear that. I, I, it's just fascinating to hear that that's your experience too um, with you and your wife. I mean, for me, you know, I'll, I can, <laughs> I have sort of the same thing because I'll say that both of my kids have also been diagnosed with the same form. I did pass it along, unfortunately, to both of our teenage daughters. So we, each of us wears, each of the three of us wears a CGM. And so we'll eat a meal and uh, be like, oh, look at this. <laughs> you know, my, my 14 year old, sure blood sugar will be at like, you know, it, I mean, it's just interesting to see the range of responses we can have to the same meal, to similar exercise patterns. And I, I can't tell you why, why they're different. Yeah. Even when you guys have the same meal, do you see big differences? Like what is, what's an example? Oh yeah. I mean, well, I don't, I'll just take a look at the CGM data from yesterday and see because, <laughs> because I can, because these tools are amazing. Yeah. Like uh, this is a good example. Last night we had a meal that was, it had some, usually we eat pretty low carb last night. We had a, 
higher carb meal that had, you know, rice and some meat and a lot of vegetables. And I, I know that we all had kind of similar portion sizes. I went above 200 and had a hard time getting my numbers down. I think probably just who knows, hormones, my age, I don't know, we're all, all, you know, teenagers, I think are especially hormonal too, but they, you know, (laughs) their numbers, the highest they went was one of them went to 150, one of them went to like 170. So similar meal, similar amount, you just, it's, it's, diabetes is squirrely, right? (laughs) You know, I think all of this raises some, some really key issues. You know, Richard, you were talking about how kind of you and your wife have different responses to glucose and we all do. There's so much variation um, and how, you know, and how our bodies uh, regulate glucose because, and I think it's because, you know, glucose, it's such an important thing, you know, that we have energy, the regulation of our energy supply. So there's lots, it's a complicated pathway. There's lots of different ways it can go wrong. And that's what we know about diabetes. And that's what Emily's unusually prescient uh, physician knew in the 1980s. So I think one of the things this highlights is, you know, to those of us who study the, you know, the complexity of the genetics of diabetes, Here you have, you think this sort of simplifies things. You've got three people who have diabetes due to the same genetic, same exact genetic cause, and yet they're still very different. They're different in age. They're different in the other other genetics they have. They they share a lot of genetics, but then they also have different genetics. And so one of the reasons some of us, many of us are interested in understanding, in studying these types of diabetes is that not only can we help people to get treatments that's more tailored to them, but we can sort of start with kind of the, what you might call the low-hanging fruit, where you do know the cause of it. Um, And you can start to understand those cases, and then you might be able to start to understand the more complex cases better. Yeah, um, I guess one thing that's, you know, I'm not trying to give advice here, but I've noticed, um, you know, if my blood sugar is high or my wife's is high, uh, you know, we go for like a 20-minute walk or exercise like in the treadmill or something, you know, even walking and it brings it down like 20, 30 points. So I guess, uh, you know, in the skeletal muscle, there's a lot of glucose that can be, can mm-hmm. be taken up to reduce levels. It's kind of like a, you know, a, a quick semi fix to things. Oh yeah, totally. I yeah. mean, I can tell you that during the pandemic, you know, we're in the middle of pandemic, right. And <laughs> the sort of upside, I guess, to that in terms of diabetes in my family um, and our experience is that, you know, I have these two teenagers in the house. They're both, we're all of us are wearing CGMs. It's a really great opportunity to say, hey, why don't you hop on the exercise bike or go for a walk and watch your numbers and see what you learn. And, you know, because we're, we're, we can see when their blood sugar is going high and then they're here. And so we can have a conversation about it and it's, it's very easy and natural and not, it feels a little perhaps less naggy than it might feel if everybody was out in the real world. And we were just texting at them or calling them and saying, Hey, why don't you jump on the bike or, but it's really helping, I think them to develop because they're, they're new to diabetes. They were both diagnosed in the past year. So they're able to really see the cause and effect. And um, yeah, we'll just, they'll just, they'll eat and we'll go for a walk or, or we'll eat dinner. And if somebody's going high, like I was last night, I'll jump on the bike, but it does, you know, Diabetes is not always so straightforward. And so, you know, last night I biked for an hour and nothing changed. <laughs> so I would say that's oh, wow. probably hormones. Tony can talk about that uh, better yeah. than I could. But Yeah. I mean, I guess I was just sort of going to sort of jump in and say, Richard, what I find interesting. So, so do I understand you? So you all are not like, you're not diabetic, you, you, but you're just interested in monitoring your blood sugar. Is that? Yeah, we're considerably pre-diabetic. So I'm trying to pre-diabetic. Yeah, head, it okay. off the, head it off at the pass and. 
like my wife had gestational uh-huh. diabetes twice and so I she's see. Yeah. more prone so we're trying to make sure that we don't you know it doesn't worsen yeah so this is a great point because i think it, it highlights something else too which is that the prediabetes is sort of in the class generally when people have prediabetes it's sort of in the class of kind of kind of being at risk for type 2 diabetes um, sometimes type 2 diabetes is sort of, as I think, mistakenly kind of sometimes referred to as a lifestyle disease. And I think what's been really interesting talking to Emily about it is that really lifestyle plays a role in controlling blood sugar for anybody, whether they have diabetes or prediabetes or don't have diabetes or even have monogenic diabetes. And so, you know, you were talking about how, Richard, that, you know, you take a walk and your and your glucose goes down 20, but then there will be some people who might take that same walk and it might go down less. And that's where you have this sort of genetics and, and lifestyle um, interplay. Um, some people have diabetes susceptibility factors that are more subtle than the variant that, that Emily and others have. They may need additional help in addition you know, to, to exercising. Um, some people respond really well. And so I think there's sometimes sort of a tendency to kind of really separate out all these, you know, forms of diabetes. But the bottom line really is that for, you know, for any, you know, any condition where there's kind of excess glucose being produced, if the body has the ability to utilize that glucose, then, you know, those things can help. Where, you know, the differences are sometimes is, you know, if somebody has type 1 diabetes, if you have type 1 diabetes, for people with the most kind of severe and classic forms of type 1 diabetes, their issue is that they won't produce, eventually, if not treated, they won't produce any insulin. But for, for many people with different types of diabetes, for, for type 2, which is really sort of a, a, a less well understood sort of web of all different types of, of, of diabetes, and then, you know, in monogenic diabetes, um, as long as you're producing some insulin, then the other ways that you exert control of your glucose levels is through how your body uses it. And that's in that whole area known as, you know, insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance. So you're making, you know, by exercising, you're making your muscles more sensitive, for example, to insulin. Okay. Well, very good. Um, Tony, what's the best way for people to find out more? Um, I mean, this probably opens people's eyes if they're having, you know, strange yeah. high glucose and, you know, they don't just want to say, oh, you know, their doctor may just say, oh, you have diabetes and that's it. But there may be a lot more to the story. Mm-hmm. So what's the way for people to find out more that may be having, you know, mysterious uh, blood sugar problems or issues? Well, first of all, I did want to mention that there's there's another more rare type of diabetes. Um, when, you know, when an infant is diagnosed with diabetes, they used to think that's definitely type one. They now know that that's usually monogenic and that about half of those infants have um, a specific genetic defect where they can actually respond to oral medications better than they respond to insulin. So it's really important in the rare cases of babies who have diabetes um, to diagnose them. But there are a number of resources. So Emily and I actually and other patients and providers and researchers have teamed up together. We So far, we, we have kind of a, a beta of kind of a splash page, but we're going to be developing. We've developed a consortium called MDRAC, which is Monogenic Diabetes Research and Advocacy Consortium. And we have a website, mdrac.org. Um, that has links to some information. And the links it has are to information, including the University of Exeter Diabetes Gene page, which is an excellent, very well-developed source for this. The U.S. Monogenic Diabetes Registry at the University of Chicago um, and some other clinics. There's a few clinics in this country where people specialize in diagnosing and treating these patients. And a link we need to add soon as we build out the page more um, is there's a a, a new study that just started at the end of September 
that I am a co-investigator on. It's a national study involving over a dozen institutions, and it's called the, the Rare and Atypical Diabetes Network, which has the acronym of RADIANT, because if there's one thing we've all learned in research, then you need to have a good acronym to have a successful research project. This is a project that people can enroll in by going to a website, which is atypicaldiabetesnetwork.org. And what they are trying to do actually is go a step further than trying to diagnose these known forms of monogenic diabetes, which, you know, there really, they really has been a lot of knowledge um, going on. But, but if people kind of, you know, find out that they have atypical diabetes, they get genetic testing, um, and then they, they, they don't have a known form, they can enroll in this study uh, where they're trying to look really closely at the whole genome and understand what, what are the causes of these unusual types of diabetes. But so that's kind of the sites that are available. And we're, what we're trying to do is to identify more resources for people to go to. You know, you can go to, you know, you can, you can see a doctor or you can, you know, a diabetes doctor and, you know, just raise the point, um, bring, bring up some of the resources that are found at these websites. But what we're hoping to do is in the in the coming months is to, to really identify where people can go locally to find people that are find you know people have that that has specific um, expertise in this. But the key is that first you kind of have to recognize it and then to diagnose it, to know that you have it, then you have to do or usually you know have to do a genetic test. And the genetic testing um, involves literally like spell checking the sequences of several genes to see if there's a there's an error in one of them. And the testing is complex. It's getting uh, more streamlined, it's getting less expensive. And so we think that it's going to be um, easier to diagnose. But I think going to these websites is kind of a good starting point to get some basic information um, and start to see where you can go to learn more. Okay, well, very good. We'll end with that. And uh, Tony and Emily, thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Take care. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.